hard to see at first. When Jesus stepped into the role, people were confused. They didn't quite get him. They couldn't see how he fulfilled the prophecy at all. Their expectations were so different from the reality that he brought. His life ended with a crown of thorns rather than a crown of glory. He was shamed. He was derided. Written over his cross was a sign that mocked him, saying, King of the Jews. Who would believe it? But the sign was right. He was the king. Not only of the Jews, but of the whole world. And he's still the king. He's the king that every human heart longs for. Even ours. Now our passage today in John, in three parts, gives us three pictures of the king that we have in Jesus. Who is this king? He's the humble king. The fruitful king. And the exalted king. First, he's the humble king. As we read in verses 12 through 19, it was Passover week in Jerusalem. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and there was this buzz around town. People had heard about this. And as he headed from Bethany to Jerusalem, there was this large crowd that came to greet him there. They took palm branches and they welcomed him, crying out, Hosanna, which we sing, Hosanna. That means, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What what this is, this is a king's welcome. They're welcoming their king into his royal city. Earlier in John's gospel, after the feeding of the 5,000, remember that in John chapter 6? They came to make Jesus king, and what did he do? He, He withdrew from them. He retreated from them. Something is different here. Now Jesus is, rather than withdrawing, he's, he's accepting this crown, as it were. He's, he's stepping into it. And in this passage, there's this great irony. And really, in the rest of the chapter, there's this great irony. Here was this great messianic king who came in what? The most humble way possible. He didn't look very kingly when he came into Jerusalem. It wasn't what the crowd expected. It's it's probably not what we would have expected if we were there. But it was, he was exactly the king that we need. He was exactly the king that we long for. Because let's think about it. Who do we want to rule over us? There's this this old ache in our hearts for a great king, isn't there? I I don't know why. I I do know why. But it's just there in us, right? It's why all the great stories of of our past have these great glorious kings. We love the great hero who comes to save his people. But we want a certain kind of king. We want a king who's fierce with his enemies, yet gentle with us. We want, we want the bravery, the, the courage of a great warrior, but we also want fatherly affection, don't we? 
We, we want someone who's exalted above everyone else. But someone who has an open throne room that we can come to. We want someone more glorious than us, of course, but, but he's got to be one of us, doesn't he? We want to do uh, more than just behold him. We want to be with him. We want more than his greatness. We, we actually want to be inside of that greatness. We want a part of it. We want protection from all that threatens us. We want, we want grandeur, yes, but also deep humility. What we want is we want a lion and a lamb in the same person. That's what we're looking for. And the problem is that no king has ever lived up to that standard. Except for Jesus. He is the one exception. He meets all the requirements. Jesus holds within himself all of those excellencies we most desire, yet cannot seem to be held in any other one person. He has them all. That, that, that old ache for a glorious and all-sufficient king that's deep inside of us is fully satisfied in him and in him alone. He's the king that we most desperately want. And he's the king that we most wonderfully have. But when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem that day and the people went out to welcome him as king, he defied all expectations. He brought no pomp and circumstance in himself. He didn't look like this great warrior who would come in to save his people from the Roman rule, who would restore their land, who would bring back their honor, re would renew their nation to its former glory. He didn't look like that guy. Instead, Jesus did something that was, on the one hand, absolutely surprising, and yet, on the other hand, absolutely to be expected. In fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, he found a young donkey, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So instead of this great chariot, this war horse, Jesus rode into town on a donkey's colt, a small, humble animal. It wasn't quite King David being sung into the city after his great military victory. It's not much like King Arthur pulling the Excalibur sword from the stone, is it? We have a, a meek and humble king here. When the crowd shouted out, save us, Hosanna. I'm not sure they had this kind of king in mind. Remember, they shouted that before Jesus went and grabbed that donkey. He probably surprised some people. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He was showing the nature of his kingship. He was identifying himself with the king prophesied 500 years before in Zechariah 9. Instead of bringing war, he was bringing peace. He was the king that they longed for, but they just didn't understand that yet. They didn't know what his victory would look like. And you know, if we think about it, what if Jesus had come 
to meet their expectations on that great war horse with his chariots, rounding up an army of millions to take on the Roman oppressors. I mean, the historian Josephus said, you know, there were two, three hundred million people that came into Jerusalem for this week. Jesus could have rounded up all of them. Now, maybe he could have led them to some great victory in that day. But if they beat the Romans, that's fine, I guess. But what good does that ultimately do? I mean, they'd still, even if they won, they'd all still die someday. And then what would happen? How would that victory help them? How would it help you here today? We need a king who can reign and rule for much longer than a single lifetime. Jesus was there to solve a much greater problem than the Romans. He was a king leading his people in a different battle. It was an ancient one. And the stakes couldn't have been higher. And the only way to win was through humility. And he was willing to go that low. This wasn't something the crowd or Jesus' disciples understood immediately. They didn't know what he was doing, what he was saying in that moment. John said they only understood it after his resurrection. You know, they must have just kind of cocked their heads and, what? What's he doing? What does this mean? Some among the crowd had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They were probably expecting some great show like that. Some just wanted a glimpse of this guy who had done such great things. This king who was finally coming into a, into a city. All their hopes, whatever those hopes were, all of those hopes were in that moment pinned on Jesus. But they barely even understood what they were really hoping for. Jesus would go on to do far more than they could ever ask or think in that moment. He came to defeat death and sin. And the only way to do that was through the weakness of the cross. And you know, they just didn't have a category for that. And do we? It defies all expectation. Now, John tells us that the Pharisees were also there that day. They were watching what was going on. We've seen them throughout John's gospel. They're the religious leaders who doubt Jesus. They don't believe him. They actively work against him. And here they are watching all of this. And what they saw confirmed their greatest fears. Jesus was too big now. All of their efforts to to undo his work that you just saw kind of crumbling before their eyes. Look, the world has gone after him, they said to one another. Their words were more true than they even knew in that moment. Which leads us to our second point. Jesus is the humble king, but Jesus is also the fruitful king. Verses 20 through 26. As I said, the Passover feast brought millions of people into Jerusalem. Most of those, of course, were Jews. They were there for a Jewish festival. 
But in verse 20, John tells us that some Greeks were also there. Now, to be honest, if, if you don't hold these two passages together, it's a little weird that John just switches, oh, and now some Greeks come to see Jesus. What's that about? Well, John tells us that they, they go to Philip and Andrew because they want to seek Jesus. They want an audience with Jesus. And they, I don't know how this works. They, they go to Philip and then he goes to Andrew and then they together go to Jesus. I'm not sure all of that, why that's there, but it is. Nonetheless, they go to Jesus and, and we don't even really know what the question is, what they want to say to him. But in verse 23, Jesus answered them. What does he say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It must have been some question. <laughs> now, this is the fourth of nine times that Jesus referred to his hour in John's gospel. It's always in reference to his death. We've seen it three times before. Remember, the first time was a wedding at Cana. His mom comes to him and, and says, they're out of wine. He says, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, here, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up until this time, Jesus had consistently said his hour had not yet come. For, for 11 chapters, John has been preparing us for this moment right here. There's a switch. This is the pivot. What made the, made the difference? The coming of the Greeks. That seemed to be the trigger for the change from not time to time. Why? Well, interestingly enough, this is the first time in John's gospel that non-Israelites seek Jesus. He's gone to them. They've no doubt seen what he can do, heard what he can do. But this is the first time someone outside of Israel has come and said, we want to see Jesus. The world was coming to him now, just as he had been coming to the world. His mission was wider than the boundaries of Israel. It had always been that. Jesus was the king of the Jews, and, and riding in on a donkey proved that, fulfilling that prophecy in Zechariah 9. But in Zechariah 9, verse 10, we see that his reign extends to the ends of the earth. Listen to it again. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9, verse 10 there, it, it's really just a quote from Psalm 72, verse 8, which promises worldwide, worldwide reign of Israel's king. The Messiah was more than just king of the Jews. He's the king of the world, of all nations. That's a different kind of king. And now as Jesus welcomes the Greeks, he proclaims that this worldwide salvation has come. And in verse 24, in one of the most profound statements ever spoken, Jesus told us how this salvation works. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus said this about himself. He came to fall into the earth and die. Why? Because that's how a fruitful harvest is born. Think about that. That's a shocking statement. Like the grain, Jesus would die. And you think, but how can the king die? <laughs> the king has to live, right? Long live the king. And this is where the gospel starts to defy our thinking. It starts to just turn everything on its end for us. We just don't expect life Harvest to come through death? That doesn't make sense to us. We don't expect the world to be saved by a crucified king, do we? But what Jesus is saying is that's the only way it can happen. There is no salvation without the death of Christ. And here's why. Because of our sins, the Bible says we are under the wrath of God. And it's our fault. There's no blaming him. Because of our sins, there is no way for us to get our righteousness back. We can't be sorry enough. We can't do enough good deeds. We can't undo this. Our sin completely cuts us off from God. There's a gap between us and God, and there is no way for us to bridge that gap. We can't do it on our own. That's the bad news of the gospel. The gospel includes bad news. It must. But here's the good news of the gospel. God bridged the gap. <laughs> As prophesied in the scriptures, Jesus came to live the perfect, obedient life that we should have lived, but didn't live. Our heavenly king, think about it, rather than just sitting on his throne, passing condemnation on his people, which he could have rightfully done, he's the king. What did he do? He stepped off of his eternal sovereign throne to come here, to be born of a virgin, to live 30 years in obscurity as a carpenter, making things with his hands, and then to, to step in faith into a public ministry to sinners and sufferers of all kinds, people who would love him, people who would hate him, to inaugurate his kingdom. And then, knowing that the only way to bring this story to completion, he set his face toward the cross, and he went steadfastly to it. And he didn't waver. And he didn't look back. He was willing to go to the front and die for his people because he loved them. 
taking their place, taking your place. He was condemned as a criminal, and he was beaten, and he was nailed to a Roman cross where he died for his people's sins. And in his death, he took upon himself that, that, that the fullness of God's wrath for sin. And he paid the penalty in full, totally. That's the gospel. To be the fruitful king, he had to first be the crucified king. His triumphal entry, rather than this great ascension, was this really great descension. It was a gateway to a cross where he laid down his life for his sinful people. Our king's victory came through defeat because that's the only way to save us from the only enemy that can truly kill us. He had to be killed on our behalf. As the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, so Jesus fell to the earth and died. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Because that's not yet good news, not really. Just as the wheat then grows from death into this bountiful harvest, so does Christ. When the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the grave, he brought with him a host of captives in his train. He led many sons and daughters to glory. He's the fruitful king whose fruit is born out of the grave. Through his blood, by his death, we shouldn't ever look at a seed the same way again. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Our king has so ordered his kingdom that even a grain of wheat preaches the gospel. <laughs> That's amazing to me. Now, this is... This is more than just an explanation of how Jesus saves. It's also a message for how we ought to live in light of how he saves. Jesus followed up verse 24 with verses 25 and 26, which say, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now Jesus went first. And all he's asking us to do is follow. And here's the irony of life. Only by losing the life that we think we really want and handing that over to God. Will we ever get the life that we really most deeply want? It only comes that way. I mean, the truth is we don't know what we want. We think we do. But we don't. 
But God does. And he brought salvation before we even knew we needed to ask for it. Following Jesus, it might feel like a lot of little deaths to us. In some ways, that's exactly what it is. But we're only dying to the things that can ultimately kill us anyway. And we're only dying to those things so that we can come alive to God. And that seems to be a, a trade worth making. Following Jesus ensures that we have the one king who can truly save us. And, and the thing about a king is, he's in charge. <laughs> He's the Lord. He can do what he wants. He can send us where he wants to send us. And sometimes where he takes us might not, might not make a lot of sense to us in the moment. Sometimes it might even feel like there's just a darkness that covers us. But how can a grain of wheat grow unless it falls into the ground and dies? Even in our darkness, he's growing us. He's bringing us to himself. If we follow Jesus, we will walk his path. If we serve Jesus, we will be where he is. But if we are where he is, the Father will be there too. He will honor us. That's amazing to me. I mean, isn't everything we do in life for the purpose of honor, <laughs> for the purpose of glory? Well, where can you get it? Not, not for a fleeting moment, but where can you get it for forever? There's only one place. There's only one place. It's with the glorious one, with Jesus. The only place to get true glory, the glory that we most desperately want, is by being with him. So how do we get to be with him? Well, that leads us to the final point. Jesus is the humble king. He's the fruitful king. Finally, he's the exalted king. In Zechariah 9, verse 11, the coming king is prophesied as the one whose blood sets the prisoners free from the waterless pit. No wonder then that in John 12, 27, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. John's gospel doesn't include the Gethsemane scene where Jesus asked that the cup be taken from him. This is John's Gethsemane scene. This is the moment. His soul is troubled because the time is now at hand. But look how Jesus responds to his troubled soul. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus knew that this is why he was there. He was born for this. This was his moment. It was the time that all of human history was leading up to. 
what was he going to do now? Could he turn away? Does the king retreat? Our king doesn't. In this wonderful moment where we, we, we glimpse the, the glory of who God is, this triune God that we worship, Jesus turned his trouble, his troubled soul, to the Father. And in verse 28, he prayed the greatest prayer anyone could possibly pray. Father, glorify your name. And what happened next is amazing. It's one of only three times in the Bible that we hear the Father's voice in Jesus' earthly life. It happened at his baptism. It happened at his transfiguration. And in both of those instances, the Father glorified the Son. Here, the Father glorifies himself in response to Jesus' prayer. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus, he's in this moment of crisis. The entirety of his life is funneling down to the next few days where he will endure suffering unlike any human ever did or ever would again. He had the weight of the world upon his shoulders. All of the expectations and hopes and promises of all of God's word standing right there on top of him. And in his desperation, in his moment of great need, he called out to the Father. His greatest desire is to glorify the Father. And what does the Father say? He assures him that he will. Can you imagine the comfort? Now, this, what I'm going to say next, this isn't a main point of the passage, but I just want to say it. We may not have moments that big in our life. We aren't the Savior of the world. But we all have those moments to some degree, don't we? What do we do then? What can we expect? Father will be with you. When everything is on the line for you, your prayer needs to be nothing more than Father. Glorify yourself. Your life is actually, it's actually most valuable and worthwhile and exciting and weighty when the glory of God is primary. God can and God will, this is amazing to me, he will glorify himself in little old you and me. Not to the same effect as Jesus, of course, but no less truly. You can trust him even when the prospects are dim. In fact, that's where the, sh the glory shines the brightest. <laughs> When everything else is the darkest. Now, the crowd that stood there that day with Jesus, they, they, they heard the voice. 
It sounded like thunder, but they couldn't make out the words. They, they thought, oh, well, they know something supernatural happened. They thought, well, maybe it's an angel. And Jesus said that it came for their sake. He apparently didn't need the voice, <laughs> but they did. The voice, it confirmed to everybody watching that Jesus was, this was a bigger moment than maybe they had been expecting. Something supernatural was happening here. Something out of their control. Jesus was on a, was on a bigger mission than, mission than any that they had in mind for him. And Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the, will the ruler of this world be cast out. Those are some strong words. And I just talked about how humble Jesus is. But just because Jesus is a humble king doesn't mean that he's not also a mighty warrior. Even if the world couldn't yet see it. Now was the time of the judgment for the world and for the sin and for, for the devil that has destroyed us, that has plagued us, that has harmed us. Jesus was, he was strapping on his armor, but he was doing it by humbling himself. He was saving his people by going to his death. He was to be lifted up by going down. The issue is not his strength or his bravery. It's his method. The way to win the war looked like losing it. <laughs> the way to eternal life for his people was his death upon a cross. Look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John helps us by saying he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This humble king would be exalted. But the place of exaltation was the cross. The irony of the gospel is amazing to me. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, I know that we're all familiar with the cross. But let me just remind you that the cross was not a pretty thing. This was no easy task. The cross was a method of punishment designed for the, the, the utmost humiliation. One author put it this way, crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. Now what king would willingly allow himself to undergo that. Jesus would. And he said this to show how he will draw all people to himself. Only Jesus could turn the symbol of humiliation into the symbol of glorification. Despite, despite insults, he brought praise. Despite the loss of dignity, he showed forth honor. Through disgrace, he attracted worshipers. In his dehumanization, he gave us our humanity back. In his degradation, he restored our relationship with the God against whom we have rebelled. 
God will have his glory on the cross of Christ and the world will flock to him. And there, they will behold their king. (laughs) Now that seems to defy all logic, doesn't it? The crowd can understand it. Look at verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? It it didn't compute with them. And, And no wonder. It's not at all what anyone would expect. But as we've seen, this message is from of old. This is the gospel that was embedded in the fabric of God's universe. The king would save his people. He would usher in his kingdom. He would welcome the world inside. And he would do it from a cross, not from a palace. He would do it through the victory of death. He would do it by dying and then rising again like a seed that bears much fruit. He would be the exalted king, lifted on the cross for all the world to behold. That's our king. Finally, look at verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Here's the invitation. (laughs) Step into the light of Christ. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. How can you do that? Well, it's simple, really. You just got to behold the king. You just have to listen to Jesus' words. You just have to trust his work. You just have to accept the grace of God who draws you through the exaltation of his son on the cross, dying for your sin, bringing you back, making peace with you through his blood. The king has come. He's come. And he's won the victory over the only enemy that can truly kill you. He's won that for you. He's the king that your heart longs for. And though he died, he didn't stay dead. He now lives by the power of his resurrection. And one day he will return to gather his people into his everlasting kingdom of glory and of grace. And as a herald of the king in this moment, with the authority of the crucified and risen Christ, I just invite you into that kingdom. Come and see what the Lord has done. Come with me. And let's just worship this great king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage for the truths that it proclaims to us, for the reality 
of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that saves us from our sins, that reconciles us to you, that brings us back. Father, I pray that we would just deeply accept that, that we would just live in light of that, and that we would just behold our King. We pray this in Jesus' name.